good, everybody? Welcome to another Niners Nation podcast. This is the Gold Standard Podcast. I'm Rob Stats Guerrera, and with me, as always, is Levin Black. What's up, Levin? Not a whole lot. We're getting towards the end of the offseason, though. We are getting towards the end of the offseason. In fact, we only have one more show after this one before the start of training camp. So, you know, we we pretty much made it, which is fantastic. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm ready for some actual news, which ironically, this episode, we have some actual, like, it matters news rather than just speculative Oh, who's going to start? Who's not going to start type stuff. So, yes, we have actual serious news to talk about, which we are going to cover involving Richard Sherman. And then after we take a break, we'll get to the stupid offseason news that we generally have to talk about <laughs> involving Trey Lance and what he was wearing and uh, a tweet from PFF that excluded a famous 49er that got you all fired up. But we have to start today with the serious news. I usually, you know, tell you the episode number. We talk about the famous 49er that wore that number. I didn't want to do any of that today because there was a serious story on Wednesday involving Richard Sherman. Uh, Basically, if you don't know the news, he was involved in, he was allegedly involved in a hit and run car accident. He didn't hit any people, uh, but he did smash his car into a barricade through a closed construction site. And then, according to police, left the vehicle after it was basically undrivable. They said that one of the front tires was pretty much hanging off of this thing. Uh, He fled to his in-law's house where he tried to break into the home. And they called 911. The cops came. He re- they said they were going to arrest him. He resisted arrest. And eventually, they had to call in a canine unit. Uh, They finally got him uh, under control. He was taken to a hospital, all minor injuries, and uh, he was in jail. And I believe, as of this recording, is still in jail. He's been charged with multiple things, including domestic burglary, domestic violence, which I don't want to make light of it, but he didn't assault anybody. But because he was breaking into the home of his in-laws, that makes it a burglary, domestic violence, as opposed to just a burglary charge. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of things that he's... uh, charges that he's facing but Ian Rappaport added a little context uh, to the story when he reported that Sherman has been having mental health issues for a while and that uh, his friends have actually flown out to see him to try and help him so this is obviously an ongoing story I know there's a lot to uh, respond to there Levin but I wanted to sort of set the stage for anyone that didn't know what happened on Wednesday yeah this is kind of a crazy story because it's not just a straight up, you know, did he do what he's accused of or did he not? There are a ton of layers to it. Some aren't as big of a deal as others. Some are only slightly a big deal and some are huge deals, depending on if he did it or not. You know, it's, it's a a story that has probably like eight or nine different sub stories within it that are going to end up getting played out and probably become mostly, publicly known over the next week or two, uh, if not longer. But it, it's it's one that's hard to react to, in my opinion, because like at first you hear domestic violence, so you thought, you know, okay, you know, that that's done and over with. I'm I'm not having anything to do with Sherman because I don't you know, I don't have anything to do with somebody that's like that. But then it comes out that no, he didn't actually do anything physical to anybody. It's just how the law is written it's called that even though he didn't do anything but then there's the other parts of it like it is 
widely believed he was drinking and driving at this point. It's not confirmed yet, but uh, it was mentioned in the 911 call by his wife, and it's what the police believed, and they, I believe they have now actually charged him with a DUI. Um, so that in and of itself is kind of like, I, I tweeted about it, like, if I can afford an Uber, if I go out drinking, you sure as hell can afford one as Richard Sherman or any NFL player. There's no excuses. It is the dumbest possible thing you can do because it completely destroys your career and your rep. And I, that's the other part of this is why was Sherman going crazy at his in-laws? And I think that's part of it is that he's had this top flight reputation. You know, he, he's... Uh, high up in the players' union, he is. He negotiated his own contracts. He's kind of seen as one of the smartest players in the league, and a leader of the players. And this kind of ends a lot of that, you know. And I think that and the realization that he's a free agent and this could end his career, just from the outside looking in at, at, at what we know now. I think that's why he was freaking out so bad is that he knew the ramifications that this is going to be. Right. You mentioned his position with the union. He's a vice president on the NFL Players Association's executive committee. And we don't know everything, obviously, right now. There's still a lot to find out. But clearly he was having some sort of mental health crisis. Now, whether that came from possibly facing the end of his career, we have no idea. But clearly he was in some sort of mental distress. Um and that doesn't excuse the driving drunk if if he was indeed drunk or anything like that. But there's so much of this story to unpack. Um, you know, I don't know how to to feel about this. Like you said, if it was like a strictly a domestic violence thing, we that has happened a lot in the NFL, and and it's not very difficult to decide how you feel about that type of thing. But when you get into uh, the all the mental health side of things and how that plays into it, it there's a lot I want to find out here because when I first heard the news, I was absolutely floored because not that we truly know any of these players, but I just Richard Sherman was like the last person I would think that was going to be involved in something like that. And it, it just blew me away. Like I was completely floored. I mean, when you talk to Richard Sherman or you hear him speak, he seems very just, you know, very intelligent, very together, very... um like an elder statesman of the NFL, kind of. Uncle Sherm. Yeah, that's what they. That's what the 49ers players called him. So this just totally blew me away. And I, we just kept getting more and more details as the news sort of came in on Wednesday. And it's just, it, it's just a sad, it's a sad state of affairs. Yeah, and like you said, the mental disorder side of this kind of, that throws it into a whole different direction. In terms of, you know, I don't, I don't want to speculate on what it could be. You know, there, there's a lot of things there. I don't like to speculate on what somebody's mental disorder is. And we, I would say that's probably the least likely uh, part of this that we are likely to learn. Because, you know, that's a personal thing that honestly is none of our business. What his mental issues are right now, whether it's a mental disorder or not. Um, so I'm not going to speculate on what it is, even though... I want to, I'm just not going to let myself go there, but I certainly hope it's something that he's going to get the help he needs for. And even if that was the cause of all of this, 
to me, there's still no excuses. You know what I mean? Like, don't drink and drive. If you ha- if you're having mental issues, get the help you need. And he's smart enough to do that, which is part of what's so shocking is that, you know, he's somebody that I I wouldn't be shocked to see him in in therapy. You know, like I think he's somebody that's smart enough, um, progressive enough to not be you know stuck in the old ways of I don't even talk to anybody. You know what I mean? And I think that's part of why it's so surprising because he seemed to be somebody that was not only smart but knew himself really really well it's when it comes to mental health it's you know there's stigma there's a lot of stigma there still um and i just want to say by the way if you or anybody that you know is having any kind of mental health issues there are people willing to listen 24 hours a day seven days a week you can call the national suicide prevention lifeline uh 800-273-8255 someone wants to hear you and listen to you please get the help that you need it, the whole thing just completely blew me away. And you talked about uh, the 911 call. Um, you actually sent it to me. I had a policy when I was producing shows. I hate that 911 calls are public. And I never, ever used one in a show that I was involved in. And I never will. I don't ever think they should be played and broadcasted publicly. Um, I just think that, what I mean, obviously, when you call 911... You're not at your highest point. In fact, you're at your lowest point, right? It's an emergency situation by definition. I've called 911 in emergency situations. My daughter was having an allergic reaction. I picked up the phone and dialed 911. I promise you, it is not something I wanted broadcasted on the national media or anywhere, local media either. Like, I, I just, I really do not like that those things become public. And I hate that uh, shows use them. Yeah, and I, I fall the other way. Uh, are some idiots out there going to hear the 911 call and make unilateral judgments based off that or, or use them in, in a nefarious way? Yeah, you're always going to have idiots out there. But for m- most people, what it does is it provides the context of what people were thinking in the moment. What were the actual issues in the moment? Because you can't always get that from the police reports and from the police's side of things, which a lot of times you only hear the police's side on cases like this. So it's going to be skewed. That is always a window into what's actually happening in that moment and the fears and dangers and what the person's actually doing. And that's why I do think that they're very valuable to be broadcasted because when it is something like this, you know, some people might fall in line that this is a private matter. It's not. It, it's just not. This is not. It, it is to a certain extent, but in terms of what he did and what he didn't do and the kind of basics of what happened, you know, you don't necessarily need all the details, but the basics of what happened, that's not a private matter. But I think that we we've gotten those. We've gotten those from the police. And I think it's on us as broadcasters to listen to the 911 call and then inform the audience of the information that they need to know from that call. Like, obviously, we're talking about it right now. And I think that there was information in that call that we learned. Uh, we learned uh, that he was having thoughts of suicide. That was something that, you know, obviously the police have no idea about. That's the only way we could have found that out is through the 911 call. And that's worth talking about and worth bringing up. But I, I think there's a difference between that and actually playing the call. To me, it just always rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, I can understand your point of view. 
I don't, it, it, it's a little bit of a gray area. I do think that the 24 hours a day news cycle, the news networks, you know, the CNN, Fox News, MSNBCs, they do fall prey to sensationalism and they have 24 hours a day that they got to fill in a way that will keep people watching. And that has led in, I don't think any uncertain terms to the reputation of what has happened to journalism overall. Journalism is no longer respected. It's no longer seen as if you're a journalist, you're telling the truth. And that's because the 24 hours news cycle and those news networks have changed things and they're entertainment channels in reality. And yeah, when it comes to big profile cases that make the 24 hour news cycle, they do misuse the 911 calls, I believe. They chop them up. That's part of my problem is when they chop them up to kind of cherry pick certain moments to make it seem a certain way and make it more sensationalized. So I, I can get that point of view, but I do think that the 911 calls can be used correctly when they're broadcasted. What uh, other information did we learn from that 911 call that stuck out to you? Well, I mean, my reaction to the 911 call is the the suicidal thoughts is one concerning because um, it shows, okay, he is having some mental issues right now. Um, but that's also why I, I connect the dots to, in my opinion, he was reacting to the fact that he just did something that he knew could very well end his career forever changes his reputation and that to me just you know i'm not saying it definitely is just seems like at this point that that might be why he was suicidal reacting to what he knew was coming but it also brings the question as to if he was suicidal why did his family not let him in you know what i mean like they were not letting him in they were keeping him out of the house was that just because they didn't want him to come in and get a knife or or something like that like it just, to me, you know, what what's a normal family react like? To me, they open the door and they run out and try to help. So it, it seems a little odd of a reaction to me. It makes me wonder um, if there's something else there um, as to why, like a real legitimate reason why they weren't letting him in the house. But my other reaction to that 911 call, and I feel like it needs to be said, is that dispatcher has no business being a dispatcher. I, I kind of had the same thought. Yeah, she was combative. She was arguing. She was telling her, you need to calm down and tell me what happened. Like telling, like interrupting uh, Sherman's wife from talking. It's like, lady, shut up and just take the info and call them. She had to tell her repeatedly, I just need the police called. And the lady was saying, well, yeah, but I need to know what's happening. No, call the police and then find out the details. Get the police on their way, then get the details. Uh, that dispatcher is, does not have the right mindset for that job. I, I had an issue with the dispatcher, too. I, look, I, it's it's got to be one of the toughest jobs in the entire world. But clearly, the whenever someone calls 911, the person on the other end of the line is going to be upset. Like, you have to be able to deal with that. And, and you're right. I thought that she was cutting off uh, Richard Sherman's wife, Ashley, uh, like to the point where she could barely relay the information. You know, like. So first the call starts and Sherman's wife, Ashley Moss, is, you know, she's very upset. And then the dispatcher stops her and says, tell me the address, which I agreed with because it's like, I need to know where to send the police. But then after that, like she never lets her even explain what is happening. I thought it was like a very awkward. I don't hear a lot of 911 calls, but it seemed like that's not normally the way it should go. Yeah, uh, we can leave it at that, that. The dispatcher did not seem to be doing her job correctly she was 
like we said. She wasn't really wanting to get the info. She was constantly going, wait, what? But I did have one other reaction to the 911 call. I purposely saved it for last. And it's just that it's the sad reality of our society that I don't know if you picked up on it. I'm sure you did. But she literally was saying, or Ashley literally said at one point, we just don't want him to end up shot. She was literally, I think she was trying to weigh how much to say and to try to downplay a little bit so that they weren't showing up to a large black man freaking out being in a manner that scares police because lately what's been happening, you know, and I think that's a sad commentary on what our society is that she's literally trying to tell the dispatcher, don't come and shoot my husband. Right. I mean, think about that in a moment of crisis where your husband is clearly dealing with mental distress and you're dealing with mental distress. He's trying to break into the house and in that moment, you have to have your thoughts and your head together enough to to basically kind of plead with the officer, like, don't shoot my husband when he arrives because he's, you know, six, three, 200 pounds. Like, I can't even imagine what that's like to have to have that sort of just added burden on top of everything else that even in, in a terrible moment like this, where your first instinct is probably to panic, you have to keep it together enough to think about that stuff. Yeah, like I said, it's just a sad commentary and one that she is smart to do that. You know, she is smart to say, you know, don't come shoot my husband because let's be honest, some cops show up and they certainly have prejudices. And Richard Sherman is, I mean, I I don't think people quite realize because on the football field, he doesn't look overly big because he's standing next to other football players. But if you saw Richard Sherman walking down the street, you'd be like, wow, that's a big dude. Cause like you said, he, he, you know, he's six, two, six, three, and he's pretty well built. You know, if, if you saw him on the street, you'd say that guy's pretty damn muscular. I think one of the things that helped the situation was uh, in the press conference, they said that one of the officers in a different job had met Richard. He was like a, a chauffeur. I think it was, it was a different job where he had actually met Richard Sherman before. And so like, they kind of knew each other a little bit. And according to the police, like initially their react, their um, interaction was not confrontational. It was kind of more friendly. You know, it was like a calm interaction. But then apparently once they told Richard Sherman that they were going to arrest him, he obviously didn't want to be arrested. And that's when, you know, things got to the point where they had to call in the, the canine unit and, and end, end the scenario that way. Yeah. And the canine unit is another wrinkle to this that it's not really important in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, I, my, I had a coworker and this was being talked about at work today. And uh, one of them said, why would they, you know, she, she wasn't a football fan or anything, didn't know anything. But when she heard they they had to use a canine unit on them, they said, well, why wouldn't they just tase them? It's like, that, that's kind of an interesting point. Was he tased and he's somebody that can resist it? Is he not? Like, it's kind of an interesting point of why did they use a dog on him instead of just tasing him. I don't know the answer to that for sure. I think that they said in the press conference that basically at that time of day, the backup unit is the canine unit. Like when you call for backup, it's a canine unit. And so that's that's who arrived on the scene. That's got to be scary as hell, man. All of a sudden this dog is coming at you. I, I, I mean, that 
I'm I'm just grateful that nobody was seriously injured. Richard Sherman didn't hit anybody with his car, and the police officers had only scrapes, as they described it in the press conference. Sherman was taken to a hospital, but it was just minor, minor injuries. So thankfully, nobody is seriously injured in this whole thing. Kind of weird to say, but that's almost a saving grace in this case for Sherman, is that nobody was seriously injured. You know, he didn't... He didn't hit anybody with his vehicle. He didn't get so, you know, he didn't do domestic violence. He didn't, uh, you know, throw punches at the cops or do anything super physical. So it's almost a saving grace and why there's at least a slimmer of hope that he could come back from this. You know, I don't think it's 100% he's done. Um, like we said, he's a free agent, so his career was already teetering. So it could be the thing that he's done. And honestly, if he's having mental issues, the smarter thing is for him to probably be done so that he can move on with his life and figure out those issues. And hopefully, you know, Richard gets any help that he needs. Obviously, the football career is important, but the most important thing is that he gets the help that he needs and hopefully can go on and live a long, healthy and uh, productive life. Um, there's no easy transition off of that. So I think it's a good time to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll get into uh, a Trey Lance hullabaloo that started on social media this week and uh, a tweet from PFF that drove Levin up the wall. What else is new? We'll be back after this. All right, Levin, you know, it is peak off season time when we are talking about something that a 49ers player was wearing. And now we're going to get into it. Because Trey Lance was working out as he's been doing all offseason training, and he was wearing a stat sports tracking device, which looks, for lack of a better term, the only way to possibly describe it is it looks exactly like a sports bra. And this got 49ers Twitter all up at arms because apparently 49ers Twitter is full of idiots. <laughs> I, I got three reactions to it. One, like when I first saw the photo, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily look good. Um, in terms of, you know, what it makes it look like. Um, I don't really care. The second reaction is people that are making fun of it or having a strong reaction to it are idiots, like you said. And my third reaction was, can they really not design it a better way? That That's my lasting impression from all of this. I don't care that he was wearing it, but could they not design it in a way that doesn't look identical to a sports bra design? I think the purpose is to try and like make it as minimal as possible, right? You want the athlete like as free as possible to run around. Here's the thing. Like who cares even if it was a sports bra? Who <laughs> I cares? I want Trey Lance to throw for 5000 yards, run for 1000 yards and put up 50 touchdowns this year. If he has to wear a jetpack to do it, I don't care. Like, it doesn't matter to me. And the people that are getting all bent out of shape, oh, this isn't a good look for a man. Like, what's wrong with you? It's a piece of clothing. Like, what are we talking about here? <laughs> and it's not like he's the first athlete. These are common in soccer, where you run a lot. Um, and I saw people even posting pictures of, like, Premier League players yep. wearing them throughout practice. And a lot of them wear them underneath their jerseys during games. Um, but yeah, the, it, it's actually a very common, I don't know what you want to call it, device, garment, whatever you want to call it, uh, thing among top level athletes now, because it will give you the data of like, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it gives you the data of like how well you were breathing, like the amount your body was going through in terms of stress from what you were doing. 
and, and all sorts of great info that you as an athlete can use to adjust and improve yourself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I should clarify when I say it wasn't a good look, I don't mean like, Ooh, he shouldn't look like that. I just mean like, yeah, it looks a little goofy, but who cares? Like there's plenty of goofy things out there. It's a good thing. It's a good thing he's wearing that tracking device. I mean, the number one thing for 49ers, right, is just everybody please stay healthy. Well, if he's wearing that and he can have you know access to that information about what his body is going through as he's working out, he's way more likely to stay healthy. So you shouldn't be complaining about it, you mouth breathers. You should be excited about it that we have a quarterback that's doing everything he can to stay on the damn field for once. <laughs> So the last thing that I wanted to mention before we go is a tweet from Pro Football Focus. Uh, They've been doing a lot of these lately, and they were talking about running backs, and they tweeted out who's the best running back of the 21st century, and they had some options. LaDainian Tomlinson, Adrian Peterson, Derrick Henry, uh, Marshawn Lynch, Chris Johnson, Sean Alexander, Brian Westbrook, and Jamal Charles. Um, You took exception to this, Levin, because there's a couple of guys that they didn't put on the list that you thought should have been there. Well, I mean, in reality, if you're going to, going to ask this question, they could have ended it with the first two people you mentioned. The the argument is nobody has any shred of an argument except for LaDainian Tomlinson and Adrian Peterson, and that's because those two people are, in my opinion, top 10 all-time running backs, and they're the only two that have played in the, in the, played a majority of their career in the 2000s that are top 10 running backs, in my opinion. You know, Frank Gore might be fourth in all-time rushing yards. I wouldn't put him in the top 10 of all-time running backs. He's a Hall of Famer, but he's not a top 10 running back of all time. Um, Which people can grill me for that if they want. But anybody that thinks he's a clear-cut top 10 of all-time running back is being a homer, in my opinion. Of all time? Yeah. I don't know, man. I think he's he's at the bottom of that for sure. But I think he... How could you not put him in top 10? He's the only... He's... He's the Craig Biggio of NFL running backs. Somebody that was really good, not truly top flight elite, but was really good for a really long time. So he ended up getting his 3,000 hits for Biggio or for Frank Gore, getting number four all time in rushing. Like he has one year with more than 2,000 scrimmage yards. He has one year with more than 1,500 rush yards. Name me 10 running backs better than Frank Gore. <laughs> Right off the top of my head, yeah. let's see if I let's see if I can get there. Okay, the obvious ones: Peyton, Barry. Um, I just drew a blank. Peyton Barry, um, Jim Brown. I, uh, Jim Brown. That's the third one. Um, Eric Dickerson. I would put right above him. I would put LT and Adrian Peterson above him. So that's what six. And then you're going to get to the ones where some people might start to argue, but I wouldn't argue. And I'm sure I'm forgetting some all-time greats when Emmett. I start. Name that, yeah, Emmett Smith. So that's seven. You only need three more. And I would put guys like um, O.J. Simpson above him. Yeah. I would put guys like Earl Campbell above him. Hmm. That That's, I know that's a little more wishy-washy because his career didn't last all that long. Um, but he had a ridiculously dominant peak. And then you're going to have, who am I forgetting? Curtis Martin? Curtis, yeah, Curtis Martin, Thurman Thomas, I would put above him. Oh, I'm not putting Thurman Thomas. You're not putting Thurman Thomas? No. What about Marshall? Marshall Falk. That's the one. I was sitting here, I'm thinking, I was literally sitting here in my head going, there's somebody in the division I'm forgetting about that's an obvious one. 
I mean, I'm already past 10 right now. No, you're not. I'm at 10. I mean, I really, I think you're, I think you're shorting Frank Gore a little bit. How dare you on a 49ers podcast? <laughs> OJ Simpson's a good call by you. I agree with that. Um, I don't know if I go Dickerson. I don't know. Oh, I definitely go Dickerson. Like, I don't think Jerome Bettis is better than Frank Gore. I don't think Tony Dorsett he, he's is one better of those. Than Frank I, Gore. I think Jerome Bettis is the true like flip of the coin. Take your pick. They they have different pluses. You know, they have different things they excel at. Yeah, I, I I think again, like I said, he's at the bottom of the top ten for sure, no question. But I I don't know. I think you're. I think you're hating on Frank Gore a little bit, which is funny because you started this by defending Frank Gore by saying he should be part of this PFF tweet. Right. So we've gotten off topic. Surprise, surprise. But the main point is like Brian Westbrook, he has 6,300 total rushing yards. What the f- is he doing on this list? <laughs> you have Jamal Charles on there. Jamal Charles has one claim to fame and it's a BS claim to fame. Like I argued this earlier today on Twitter because it is a BS claim to fame. The claim to fame is among all qualified running backs, he has the highest career average yards per rush. There's good reason for that. You know what it is? During his decline years, he was hurt the entire time. So he never (laughs) had the decline years to drop his average down below other people. You know what I mean? Like a lot of running backs that are really good top flight running backs, they hang on and they have some years where they're only averaging 3.8 to 4 yards a carry. He didn't have any of those because he was pretty much hurt from age like 28 on, never played. And on top of that, even in his dominant years, they didn't overrun him. You know, a lot of running backs in their top years, they're getting the ball just because the team's up and, and he's plowing ahead for two yards and it drops his average. Jamal Charles never did that. He, he had, I think, what, two seasons over 250 rushes, rush attempts? So he doesn't belong there. And there's plenty of people. Frank Gore is not on there. That's just laughable. He's, like I said, number four all time on rushing yards. So to not have him in the best of the 2000s <laughs> is kind of odd. And then you have other guys like LaShawn McCoy. LaShawn McCoy has 15,000 scrimmage yards. You know, you don't have him on there over these guys that didn't even make 10,000 scrimmage yards. Like he literally has like, Six years of good years more than, you know, the couple guys I mentioned that shouldn't be on this list. You have other guys, though, like Tiki Barber. He played some in the 90s, but almost all of his stats came in the 2000s. He's a borderline Hall of Famer. You have somebody like Fred Taylor, who's a personal favorite of mine. Underrated. Yeah, he's a borderline Hall of Famer. And I think he had over 12,000 rushing yards in his career. You don't have him on there. He literally almost doubled up the career rushing yards of Brian Westbrook. It's like... I said it before the show, and I'll say it on air. PFF is purposely making these tweets where they get the top ones correct, and then the whole bottom half of the list is people that don't belong there because they know I'll get a reaction. And they're literally clickbaiting, and that pisses me off because they shouldn't be doing that. They have a better reputation than that, but they've suddenly started doing this. Well, that's the frustrating thing, is that the whole point of Pro Football Focus was supposed to be, hey, we're going to go beyond the eye test beyond the biases, beyond that type of thing, and get you better information to make you a smarter fan. And yet what they're doing here is just blatantly intellectually dishonest. And I feel like there's two PFFs. There's the the PFF that does all the ratings and things like that, which, by the way, I still respect. I still I don't think they're the end-all, be-all, but I think they're a really good tool to evaluate players, and I love that. But the social media PFF is horrible because they just throw out tweets like this, and it's just like, if you know anything about the sport, you know they're full of shit. <laughs> All right. 
Um, one, one running back, I, I just had to look at the top because I felt like I was forgetting some people that I would probably personally, it, it, it's a 50-50, but somebody like Edron James. No. Ed, mm, you know, Edron James has almost 16,000 career yards from scrimmage despite the injuries, and he has uh, almost 100 touchdowns too. Like He did a lot in half the career. Edron James was a good player. But you put Frank Gore with Peyton Manning, Reggie yeah, that, Wayne, that's the argument Marvin Harrison. Gore. I think his numbers are – I mean, Gore was – you know, Gore was on those 49er teams. It was nothing. There was nothing else going on with those 49er offenses except Frank Gore, and he was still churning out 1,000-yard seasons. The problem with that argument for me is it opens a Pandora's box. Okay, how many really good running backs out there were lost on really bad teams, and so they don't get to be in this argument – only because they were on bad teams. You know what I mean? Like you start making that argument and you open it up to, well, this guy would have done this if he was on a better team or this guy would have done that. You know what I mean? When they finish third all time in rushing, they could be part of that argument. That's where I draw the line. Like I get what you're saying, but it's not like Gore didn't also produce, you know, on those bad teams. He did, He's not Steven Jackson who had a really good career, who I think could have been way better, but he was just stuck on those awful Rams teams. Gore is third all time in rushing. Is he third? Why am I saying fourth? He's third. He's 16,000 yards. He's a, he's uh, about a little less than 800 yards ahead of Barry Sanders. I don't know why I'm, I've been saying fourth, but yeah, like Gore's, I guess I'm I'm an odd duck because I truly can fully eliminate the fan side of myself, um, but Gore's one of my all-time favorite Niners. Like, you know, you can see me on video, our listeners can't, but right over my shoulder, I have literally like a four foot by three foot uh, photo framed and it's Frank Gore. It's the biggest photo on my wall. It's Frank Gore. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> like, I'm a big Gore fan, but I'm able to eliminate the fan part of me that wants to say, well, if he was on better teams. or And to me, when you start talking about all-time greats, they all put up big numbers in their careers. So I start to value who was truly dominant, who, who had the higher peaks. And that's why I don't have Gore in my top 10. Gore's peak is not as high. You can argue that's because he was on bad teams during his 20s. But I personally look at it, and there are guys that had 2,000-plus scrimmage yards multiple years in a row and did it three, four times in their career, and Gore has one year like that. He has one year of 1,500 uh, or more rushing yards. I have a hard time saying a guy that only topped 1,500 yards once is top 10 all time. Yeah, you hate Frank Gore. That's fine. That's just the difference between <laughs> the two of us. I like the all-time best players in franchise history, and you don't. That's fine. That's just how we're different. Yeah, you're emotional and you're a fan and you don't want to piss off other fans. Oh, yeah, that's me. I'm the guy that doesn't <laughs> that that couches his opinions to not make people mad. I'm as I've just got all sorts of hate because I said George Kittle needs to catch more touchdowns. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All all I can say is you are definitely more of a fan and I think there's probably in my opinion a little bit of homerism, homerism coming into your opinion here. How dare you? How dare you question my integrity on, on on this network? You are a huge jerk. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the show. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you haven't done it already, please follow the Niners Nation Podcast Network. Leave us a five-star rating and a review. 
We are so close to the start of the of training camp. I cannot wait. Uh, we've got a few things, you know, we're working on behind the scenes here that might give you a different uh, feel to the Niners Nation lineup going into this season. We want to take it to, you know, another level. We're going to do more live shows on the Niners Nation YouTube feed. Uh, I just had an interview with Mike Golick Jr. of ESPN talking about the Niners offensive line. You should definitely go and check that out if you haven't done it already. He thinks Mike McGlinchey is going to be much better than the Mike McGlinchey we saw last year, which how could he not be? But he's got a lot of ties to Notre Dame. so <sighs> you... I've heard that before. See, you scoff. Did you watch McGlinchey the interview? was supposed to be so much better Nick, this past year, and he wasn't. So Did you watch the interview? I, I watched most of it. I did not get all the way through it. My own co-host didn't even finish the interview. It's like 20 minutes long. It's not even that. What else are you doing that you couldn't finish the interview? Uh, Working, playing with my daughter. Working. Avoiding the sound of your voice. Parenting. What what kind of crap excuses are those? (laughs) I don't even know if I'm going to talk to you next week. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.